The Bob Murphy Show, episode 297. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy everybody, welcome back to The Bob Murphy Show. Today I'm going to be speaking with Dan Sanchez, uh, whom I've known for years, going back to Mises Institute days when he came over and helped us launch. I mean, he did a lot of stuff, but he helped us launch our online academy. And then he since went to work for Fee. So here's just his official bio, then I'll give a little more context about what this episode's about. Dan Sanchez is an essayist, editor, and educator. His primary topics are liberty, economics, and educational philosophy. He is the director of content at the Foundation for Economic Education, or Fee, and the editor-in-chief of Fee.org. He created the Hazlitt Project and Reed Academy at Fee, launched the Mises Academy at the Mises Institute, and taught writing for Praxis. He's written hundreds of essays for venues, including Fee.org, Mises.org, Antiwar.com, and The Objective Standard. So we're going to be speaking in the second half of the conversation about the project called Reed Academy, which is named after Leonard Reed. It's not saying you should read more. You should read more, but that's not what the title of this program is suggesting. Uh, But in the first half, we talk about, um, some of you may already know this, but Dan, you know, has been public about the fact that he's had very serious... um, illness and diagnosis. So he just tells about that and what it's been like and the treatment he's getting and so forth. And then on top of that, it rekindled his faith. And so he's writing very inspiring things uh, in that context. So I let Dan talk a bit about that before we move on to the stuff about free market economics. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dan Sanchez. Dan, welcome back to the Bob Murphy Show. Thank you, Bob. It's great to be back. I think a lot of the listeners saw the news so why don't we go right into the perhaps unfortunate but i know you have a a religious spin on things as well but can you just explain people some of the news that you've publicly shared about your condition sure yeah so i've been having some health struggles it all started with a visual phenomenon that i was experiencing it was like this pulsing distortion in the right side of my field of vision at first i thought it was a, a blinking cursor because I was look, looking at the computer, and but then I realized that the cursor was, that's not where the cursor was. And so I realized that it was just there no matter where I looked. And that was recurrent. Like it would happen like once a day or every other day. And it would last for like about two minutes, but then it would clear up. But then on July 31st, when it happened again, it got worse. Like it, it started making it so that I couldn't even read anything. And while my wife was trying to help me figure out what to do about it, I blacked out. So the next thing I remember was being loaded into an ambulance. But my family told me that what what they saw was that I stood up and then fell over, like just face first on, on the Fortunately, it was on the carpet, so it wasn't that much damage. Then, and that they told me that I regained consciousness and was walking around, but I wasn't incoherent. 
but I don't remember any of that. But yeah, for the next thing I remember was the ambulance and then emergency room and then checked into the hospital. The doctor said I had a seizure, a focal seizure. And then scans showed spots in my brain and lungs, as well as a compression fracture in my spine. And then after I got checked out from the hospital, I got a bronchoscopy. Lab results from that confirmed that it is non-small cell lung cancer. And they concluded that it had spread to my brain and to my spine because a subsequent MRI indicated that the compression fracture is related to cancer in, in one of my vertebrae as well. And that the biggest lesion in my brain is probably what caused my visual disruptions and my seizure because that is in my left occipital lobe which handles the right side of your field of vision. That explains that. I got targeted radiation treatment on the two lesions in my brain. I also tested positive for a mutation called EGFR, and that was actually good news because it's a very common mutation among non-smokers like myself who get lung cancer. And so that's like often like the cause of the lung cancer. And there's a new drug called, or relatively new drug called osimertinib, or its, its brand name is Tegriso, that inhibits cancer cells with that mutation from reproducing. So I've been on that. And what's really great about that is that they're having me do that in lieu of chemotherapy. It's a substitute for chemotherapy with much like less and lighter side effects than chemotherapy. I haven't had another seizure since my first one, so that was over two months ago. It's been three weeks since my last pulsing visual distortion episode. I've had other minor symptoms, but it's hard to tell what's caused by the treatment or the cancer, and I'm just so grateful that I've had no other major symptoms. Obviously, it's a very serious condition that it's technically stage four because it has spread to other organs, and that's not great statistics across the population for that, but I am responding. I seem to be responding well to the treatment, both the radiation and the Tegriso. And yeah, I'm just going to do my, my best to try to manage it. And the doctors say that remission generally doesn't happen with stage four lung cancer, but I've heard stories of it happening. And mm. so I'm seeking to beat the odds. I'm certainly praying for you, and I know many of the listeners who are so inclined are going to be doing likewise. I know I was shocked and very sad when I heard the original announcement. You might be asking, are you like the low 40s? 45, yeah. Okay. Do you know, is it the age when that would happen for a non-smoker, or are you relatively young? I, I don't know. I don't know what the age ranges are. I'm mm -hmm. definitely young for the average lung cancer patient in general, but I, I don't know in terms of non-smokers. That's why I was, because obviously people who get it from smoking, presumably like that biases it towards later in life. Even in secular terms, I know you're very disciplined and if the doctors tell you the best thing to do to help beat the odds is X, Y, Z, that you can go and do that. And certainly you have a will. I've read things about that's one of the good predictors about who beats the odds, like the people who, I'm riffing here, but it was some formal study saying that they were asking people who had a certain diagnosis of something where the odds weren't great. And the people, when they said, like, why are you doing this tr treatment that the doctors recommend for people in your condition? And the people who said, because they said I, I might as well, that was one thing. Whereas the people who said, oh, because I want to get over this so I can go back to golfing or I want to be able to play with my grandkids. Like that was actually had predictive power, just their answer to that kind of a question. Interesting. Yeah. And for me, I also don't think of 
allo- like what they call allopathic doctors, like conventional doctors, mm-hmm. as the only source of guidance on this. Mm-hmm. Because one thing about conventional treatment these days is that they really don't talk a lot about nutrition and about mm-hmm. diet and about toxins and that you're exposed to and like on a day-to-day basis and basically just like natural non-pharmaceutical ways of improving your odds and so i've been researching what's called the metabolic approach to cancer and people who subscribe to that school of thought that they tend to favor a lot of nutritional method of treating it Mm. foods to avoid and and foods to get more of and supplements to avoid and supplements to get more of and whole life treatment too of just managing your your stress because how that that's related to your immune system and that's related to how well you're able to contend with it like managing your sleep just all these things and so i found a naturopath here in in atlanta where i live and so i'm going to see both kinds of doctors and also just not I've written about this, about how I, I don't, like a lot of people, they, they just do whatever the doctor says, like blindly and un, unthinkingly, if that's an adverb, <laughs> I don't think it is. And so I was like really worried about even the treatments that I had, like the radiation and the Tegriso because of side effects and just the possibility of damage. Ultimately, I chose to, to do those methods because I ultimately, like I decided that the benefits outweighed the risks. But it was like a struggle at first because at first it was hard to get very clear and helpful answers in terms of what those risks were and in terms of what exactly the mechanism of the treatment is. And and I've, I've had better luck recently with new doctors, basically, in getting those kinds of answers. And that played like a big role in me accepting the treatment and taking the treatment. But there are some treatments that I just didn't do. For example, they prescribed for me anti-seizure meds, including a steroid. And I just ended up not... I tried one of them, but then the side effects were really... I mean, it wasn't like serious, like it wasn't like, like making me bedridden or, or anything like that, but it was seriously affecting my quality of life. Like I was feeling pretty wretched. And so I stopped taking that. I, I never took the steroid, even though doctors were saying, no, you have to take this. You could have a seizure, which is fair enough. Maybe I could mm-hmm. have had a seizure. Like I said, I haven't in two months. And balancing what I was experiencing and what I've read about the dangers of steroids and also the, the seeming risks and the seeming benefits and their expert advice, of course, but also just like gauging my own sense of like my own experience of like how much I actually felt like a seizure risk and how much I seemed like a seizure risk just from my day-to-day symptoms. And so I ultimately chose to stay off that. And I'm really glad that I did because I just can only imagine there would have been a lot of downsides if I, all this time, I had been on both Mm -hmm. of those medications. And your gamble, if we want to call it that, at least so far has paid off in that you haven't had a seizure. So you would have in the alternate timeline, have suffered those side effects for thus far no net benefit on the anti-seizure front. I should say my wife has had a lot of medical issues and I've seen a side of things like the comment I made earlier. I just want to be put it in context and be clear. There's a danger of coming off that, oh, hey, 
if you're sick and you don't, you're not getting better, it's because you have the wrong attitude. Because I knew a guy in my church, and he just prayed and had faith and started dressing well, and he went into remission, like stuff like that. And so then if people are still sick, then, oh, it must mean you're down in the dumps or whatever, and you don't trust God. Or Anyway, I'm being respectful. That's clearly not what I'm saying about just change your attitude and it'll fix itself. But if we could just explore that a little bit, because I'm wondering, have you noticed, and I think just because stuff has become so politicized after COVID, like I could imagine, are there some doctors who, when you start asking legitimate questions, are thinking like, oh, we got one of these guys who does his own research on the internet and they were patronizing. Do you have that kind of thing where they don't understand that, no, you actually are very intelligent and you can go read stuff and this is your life that's at stake here, so you should have all the information? Not really, like at least not explicitly. Like they, they don't say that. Sometimes I get a sense of impatient, up to a certain point of just getting like impatient with the questions. And also just like surprise. I remember one of the doctors asked what my job was because her theory was that I was an engineer because she, in her experience, that engineer patients are very like exacting and ask very like specific questions. And it's like that in, in life insurance too, that I know a lot of life insurance agents and they'll come back to me and say, yeah, this prospect is an engineer, so you got to help me answer these questions. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and then when I told her that I was an editor, she thought that made sense too. <laughs> right, right. Um, in ser- terms of being a stickler. And Did then, you mention Austrian economics? And she was like, oh, one of those people. All right. <laughs> I should have. I should have. Yeah. And another doctor asked if I had medical training. I don't know if she was being like facetious about that yeah. or if she was actually impressed by my questions. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's the way it's been. I know a long time ago, for example, I read... The Politically Incorrect Guide to Science, if I'm not getting my books mixed up. And one of the chapters was about how the conventional approach to cancer was totally wrong. And, you know, this so-and-so guy has this rival theory. And but now there's so many decades of research and funding that all these people would have egg on their face. Like, have you really just read broadly and to try to pin down exactly I'm, I'm wondering if you like had to get into that and decide like yeah these people seem like actual cranks whereas these people over here they're challenging the conventional orthodoxy and they seem they're raising legitimate issues and it i have actually so the school of thought that i mentioned the metabolic approach mm-hmm. to cancer that that is actually in in an austrian school we often talk about how business cycle theory is a Nobel Prize winning theory because Hayek won the Nobel Prize mm-hmm. for that. The same is true for the metabolic theory of cancer that Otto Warburg, a scientist in the 1920s, won the Nobel Prize for his work in this area. And what he did is, again, I'm not an expert, so I might get... At this point, this video is going to be demonetized anyway, so just go ahead wrong. and let it rip. <laughs> if, if you make a mistake, I'll say, hey, he's got a brain tumor. Leave him alone. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. What he did is that he took injected cancer in rats and then killed the rats and saw that the cancer was still getting energy. And so what came out of that was this understanding that whereas normal cells get their energy from respiration through through oxygen, that cancer cells get their energy through fermentation. Because the, the creature's not breathing anymore, so if it was getting, the normal cells just stopped getting energy, whereas the cancer cells still were chugging along, at least for a while? Right. Okay. 
because they didn't need oxygen. That the fermentation can be fueled by glucose, especially. And so there was still glucose in the rats, and so it still had stuff to feed on. And so there's a, a contemporary doctor named Thomas Seyfried at Boston College. And so what he's been doing preclinical trials of is using the ketogenic diet to treat cancer. Because if you really restrict your carbs, your mm-hmm. carbohydrates, for long enough, then you enter into a state called uh, ketosis. And when you're in ketosis, basically your body is saying, okay, we're not getting new energy. And so we, we need to start fueling ourselves with, with ketones. So basically your, uh, your blood sugar goes way down and you start, instead of getting energy from glucose, when, when it's like goes from like other, other calorie sources, that instead you're getting it from ketones. And so because you don't have, basically what that can do is starve the cancer because the cancer doesn't have any glucose to feed off of because mm-hmm. the cancer can't get energy from ketones, but your healthy cells can. And so, so he's been using the ketogenic diet. And I know mm-hmm. that from the weight loss literature like that's the theory behind a standard keto diet to lose weight that like you're training your body that it just starts burning off your like your stored fat during the day and stuff as opposed to just like shutting down and like you just feel run down that it's yeah it has to do with with metabolism i don't know if that's if that's the full story but i think that's part of the story like i said i'm not an expert but yeah so there's another treatment that thomas Seyfried does because the cancer can get, the fermentation process can get energy from glucose, but also a certain type of amino acid in your body. And so there's this other treatment that he uses to limit the degree to which it can feed on that amino acid. And, and so far, it's like really promising results. And he's been doing these studies since the 90s. Mm-hmm. And, and he said that even back then, at first, people in the medical industry would get really excited because of the, the results that, mm-hmm. that he was getting. But then, as soon as they realized that the, the treatment was basically just diet, largely dietary, then that interest would just collapse. And, and he traces it to the fact that there's no money in that. Like, there's, mm-hmm. that you can't patent food. And so if it's a non-patentable treatment, that there's just, there's no, there's very little support for that. And even on that, I'll just say that I'm not, you don't have to agree or disagree, but when people hear stuff like like there's different types of people and some are like, oh yeah, I knew it's big pharma and And I think there's other people like, oh, come on. I know people in healthcare and they don't want their patients to die. And I think there's like a spectrum where you could imagine somebody like a researcher or another, somebody working in a pharmaceutical company, a decision saying, oh yeah, that's great. Go ahead. And I'm, I'm glad this guy's doing that, but that's like low hanging fruit. No pun intended with too much sugar. Everybody, if it turns out that changing your diet helps, then yeah, everyone can go do that. But what we're doing over here is on top of that, maybe we'll come up with some new drug or some new radiation treatment. So it's not that they're necessarily villains twisting their mustache, but you're right. They can say, okay, great. Yeah, if he's working on diet, go ahead. But in the meantime, we'll have something to do too. Let's go see if there's a pill we can invent. And and we're not getting paid our job is to go make money for our pharmaceutical company. It's just, that's what we do. So he's right. going and working on diet. There's nothing for me to do with that. Good luck to you, sir. But in the meantime, I'm going to go until he tells me he can cure it. 
So it, it's the same thing, but for people who think it sounds too sinister or something, it's more just, it's not your, if it's your job to go make drugs to sell to people and someone's giving you a solution that's not a drug, what are you going to do with that? Yes. Although I think definitely I've been treated by a lot of doctors. All the doctors, I, th I think, have their hearts in the right place. So it, it's definitely not a sinister thing. It's more of like incentives blinding you to certain things mm -hmm. and, and just like noticing certain things and not noticing other things. One of the resources that I've been using is a book called The Metabolic Approach to Cancer by Nasha Winters, which I highly recommend. And she talks about how backwards the medical community is on diet and especially on like sugar and carbs. And I've experienced that there's just a lot of sugar basically being pushed on you. Oh, yeah. In the there's all, I've been to hospital with vending machines with all this junk food. They're feeding me like dessert on in-hospital food provision. When I give blood, they're like off, offering me apple juice. And so in practice, like whenever they are overlapping with the dietary thing, that it's very contrary to, mm -hmm. to this whole tradition of thought. But also that they just don't, it's just this, it's shocking just like the neglect they have on that whole side of the question. It literally is true that you are what you eat. And so the fact that your bodily physiology and constitution is so dependent on what you eat on a day-to-day -day basis, it's, you would think that they would have quite a lot of things to say yeah. about in terms of like how that affects like whatever condition that, mm -hmm. that you have. But there's just very little. It's just all discussion just about pharmaceutical treatments and, and mm -hmm. procedure. It's an analogy I used to use, maybe you've heard me give it, when I would explain the Austrian business cycle theory to like a new audience of normal people. One avenue I would do is to, in preparation for Hayek's quote about, this is a paraphrase, it might be exact, but before we can explain why things should go wrong, we should first explain why they should ever go right. And I was saying how like when I was little, I didn't believe in poison. Like the idea that this little drop of something could kill me. I just didn't believe it. Fortunately, I said I didn't empirically test my hypothesis. And I said, but as I got older, I realized it's because I didn't understand how much stuff is going on to keep you alive. Like how incredible, how much complex machinery is going on and you're not even aware of it. And so that once you realize all the things that are going on and all these little things that have to be in certain parameters or else your body doesn't work, then you can see how, yeah, what you eat and, or taking a little bit of poison and how that could interrupt some critical thing. And, da, 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 and oh, yeah, okay, sure. But, and like I say, likewise here, that I think a lot of people would do, well, what are you saying, Dan? Drinking apple juice causes cancer? It's, no, that's not what he's saying. But given that you have <laughs> some tumors you're trying to slow the growth of, maybe changing the flow of stuff going into this system might affect it. It's not a weird theory that only space cadets would say who don't believe in official medicine or something. Yeah, because it, it adds up. Yeah, one, one sip of apple juice is not going to make the difference. And maybe like sugar intake by itself, like the level of it isn't decisive. Maybe it's th that combined with a whole bunch of other factors. But all these factors add up and it just behooves us to, to try to get as many factors as we can to add up in the right direction. Beyond the sad news and whatever, but then your response to it, and I've, I saw some of the things you wrote online just about how 
this is intersecting with your faith and so on. Do you want to maybe share a little bit about that element of all this? Sure. Yeah. So I've been writing on a substack of mine called Developing Devotion. And that's where I announced my diagnosis. And what was preliminary to writing that post was actually making the announcement to, to my life group that I'm part of at church. And when I made that announcement, I thought about like how I would present it. And I know that when people hear things like that, it's just sad. But at the same time, they're not just wondering like how you're doing physically, but they're probably wondering how you're doing emotionally and, and, and spiritually. And so I thought it would be good to let them know because I don't want them to be more distressed about it than they need to be. And if they're wondering, oh, wow, I wonder if he's just wallowing in just that, that would be more distressing if someone that you care about, if you're wondering that, that they're going through that on top of whatever physical symptoms that they're having. And so I just, I wanted to, you know, spare them from that kind of worry. And so I wanted them to know how I'm dealing with it, like emotionally and, and spiritually. And so I prepared what I was going to say with that in mind. And then in preparing that, I thought, you know what, I should write this down because a lot of other people like in, in my life are probably wondering the same thing or like when they find out that they will be wondering the same thing. And so then I, I ended up writing a Substack post along those lines. And what I said in that Substack post is that I talked about my religious faith. Mm-hmm. So before knowing I was sick, I had found my way back to my Christian faith. And so in light of that, I wrote, I choose to see this ordeal as a trial and this trial as a blessing. And what I meant by that is that, first of all, accepting whatever may happen as a result of this, that if things were to take a turn for the worse very quickly, and if like I am to suffer and decline and die relatively young and have my two daughters and my wife and, and my, my family and, and community lose me that early, that of just coming to terms with that and, and accepting that. And not only that, but like I said, treating it as a trial, like as an opportunity to exhibit peace and courage in the face of that, especially because like I said, I don't want other people to suffer needlessly. And that's one way of causing people that you love to, to suffer is for you to yourself succumb to suffering and despair. And so in order to, to spare people, I love that. But also as like a, a, a testament to the power of faith, that I, I feel that if people see that my faith makes me able to deal with something dire with peace and courage that is just a testament to its power and so hopefully people will would then consider exploring their own relationship with Jesus but at the same time as i wrote that i'm not resigning myself to mm-hmm. to that because i think of life in this world as not only a blessing but a mission and so to just 
say, oh, I'm just going to let the disease take me, is to renounce that mission. And so I am going to do whatever I can to be in this world as long as I can to fulfill God's calling for me, to try to improve in my walk with God and to try to share God's truth with as many people as possible. And I think of that in terms both of religious truth, in terms of sharing the gospel with people and with participating in my church community and everything, but also my day job. Because I think of economic truth and as the truth of just humanity, human nature, and the way that humans interact as part of God's truth. And Leonard Reed, the founder of Fee, and Frederick Bastiat, they really thought of it in that way as well. And like I mentioned in my post, that this condition of mine didn't make my work at Fee any less important. It it made it more important because Mm -hmm. I want to use whatever time that I can to, because especially because I think that's my specific calling, that everyone has a calling to share the gospel, but each of us has like specific gifts. And I feel that like my specific opportunity is to share this part of God's truth, like in terms of economics and social philosophy. And so an inspiration for me in this regard is Bastiat himself. Not only because he saw the the connection between the beautiful order of the market and the mind of God, as he put it, that he also struggled with illness. That I know it had something to do with his lungs or his pulmonary system. I've heard two different, I've read two different things. Someone said he had tuberculosis and someone else said he had throat cancer. So I'm not sure what Mm -hmm. he had, but he had something and he knew he was ailing because in, in the law, he said like that he was going to lend his voice to the beautiful cause of liberty as long as his breath, which and then he put in like parentheses, which is alas too inadequate or, or something like that. So a reference mm-hmm. to the fact that he was having breathing problems. Yeah, not knowing the context, you could breeze right through that and think he was just being dramatic. So long as I draw breath, I will defend liberty. But he meant it quite literally. Right. And while he was basically dying of that because it did end up claiming his life, he, he didn't slow down. Like he, he, he continued doing what he thought was his calling as well. And so he had, it was like, the, it's, it seems very much like the most prolific period of his life because in that just one to two year span, pretty much all the great classics that we know him for were released. The law and economic harmonies, and that which is seen and and not seen. And like I said, I can only hope to stand on the shoulders of such a giant as Bastiat. I'm definitely not claiming to be a Bastiat myself, but whatever ability that I have to pursue, whatever my calling I feel is, that I want to, it, it makes it even more important, given the circumstances. Very profound words there. Thank you, Dan, for sharing that. Unfortunately, folks, I just want to explain that I'm the, it's my fault here that I have a, a hard stop soon so that you, in case you're wondering like why this interview is getting truncated. In the remaining time we have here, Dan, can you elaborate? So you have a, a new project that you're launching or have launched going along with just what you said, that you're, yeah, you're not 
people wouldn't fault you if you just said, hey, I need to just take time to deal with this and I'm going to step back. Well, that's not what you're doing. So can you explain what's going on at Fee under your guidance? Sure. Yeah. It's related to our relationship, Bob, because we first started working together on the Mises Academy Mm -hmm. at the the Mises Institute that I was hired to launch that. And you were the first professor for the Mises Academy. Our first course was Understanding the Business Cycle. That was my first liberty education project that I had ever done. And so it was lectures. and. Can I stop for a second, Dan? I don't know if you know this, but when it was like official and you were, that's what you were going to do, you wrote, it was me and a couple of the other people that were like involved and you just were expressing your gratitude and what you, what your hopes were. And it was so inspirational. Like you were firing us all up. Oh yeah, let's go do this guys. Like it was really like, I'm just, I'm still remembering that thing you wrote, like just the four people. It wasn't something you were posting that you were trying to show off for the masses and this like internal memo that got me all fired up. Yeah, everyone's going to understand why QE is a terrible idea. Okay, go, sorry. Go ahead. Thank you. <laughs> I hadn't heard that. That yeah. means a lot to yeah. you. Well, that's why I'm saying it, because I'm realizing, you, like, I don't think we said it to you, but we were like saying, whoa, this kid, he's really, he's fired up. This is awesome. All right. <laughs> he actually believes this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, so it was online lectures, mm-hmm. Q&A, readings, quizzes, and it was really popular like people really enjoyed it and you did a wonderful job and since then moving to fee i started thinking about how to add to that those aspects of online education content creation and it, it was based on my own experience of how i really learned these ideas that content creation was an integral part of it because when i first discovered austrian economics and Austro-libertarianism, that it was just like a lot of people experience that's just like the rabbit hole of just the readings and just voraciously learning as much as you can through reading books and articles and watching lectures and, and things like that. But then I felt this urge to formulate what I was learning, that to write out what I was learning as an exercise in really solidifying it in, in my mind. And so I started writing forum posts and and blog posts. And then Jeffrey Tucker at the the Mises Institute, he published one of my blog posts on Mises.org. That was the the beginning of my published career as a a libertarian educator. But really, I was just trying to educate myself. That was the, the main goal of it. And so I thought, what if we integrated into this kind of online education program writing and delivering video deliveries to formulate what they're learning as a means of content creation, but also as a means of learning, and if that could enrich that. And so I created this thing this thing called the Hazlitt Project, and it was named after Henry Hazlitt because that's the way he learned too, that he had the, these dreams about going into academia and becoming like an Ivy League philosopher, but because of economic circumstances, he couldn't afford to do that. So he had to just start working. But then he got into newspapers, journalism, because he wanted to do something in in writing. And then basically by writing, writing about economics and then in business and then studying economics in order to write about that and then processing what he was studying through his editorials and his other works for popular audiences, 
Like, that's how he became a masterful economist, even though he didn't get an economics degree. So I wanted to see if we can make a program that, that systematizes that approach. And so that, that's what the Hazlitt project was, where we have these Hazlitt apprentices who take in lectures and, and readings, but then process that into content and uh, as a way of learning and teaching. And so that's been going on for four cohorts now, and we just started our fourth one. Now with the Reed Academy, it's basically taking that model and opening it up, not just to people who want to be professional libertarians like the apprentices that we give fellowships to, but just all any libertarians who want to share liberty and learn liberty through sharing it, whether through so, their social media circles or just with their friends and family and associates. That's what the Reed Academy, named after Leonard E. Reed, the founder of Fee, is all about. So check out fee.org slash Reed Academy for, to sign up. And folks, if also, besides his specific, if you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 296, I'll give links into your sub stack as well. So we got a minute here. So can you explain your teaching Fee 101? Yes. You want to take so a minute and explain what that is? Yeah, that's our inaugural course. It basically, it's a crash course in all things fee, and it's what the, the essentials to know in order to be aligned friend of liberty. And so we're learning the history of fee uh, as well as, as its prehistory in the liberty movement, and we're diving into the three key texts that fee has had the most success in disseminating and, and converting people to libertarianism. I Pencil by Leonard Reed, Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, and The Law by Frederick Bastiat, and also delving into Leonard Reed's methodology, his strategic approach to promoting advance and advancing liberty that he founded Fee to do. Okay, great. That sounds great. So I would have known for sure I pencil and economics in one lesson. The law doesn't surprise me, but I didn't know if that was the was also in the top three. So that's very great. And folks, if you haven't read any or all of those, you need to. Otherwise, you can't call yourself. Certainly, you couldn't be a professional libertarian which is a very ominous title. Okay, joking aside, Dan, condolences to you, but you're obviously taking it very well and as inspiration to all of us. Those of us so inclined will be praying for you and just wish you the, the best in all endeavors and best of wishes to your family as well. Thank you, Bob. That means so much to hear. God bless you. God bless you. And thank you folks for tuning in and we will see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.